uh, one British website compiled a list of the 100 most annoying things that British people, fe British people feel. On the list was bad body odor. So that's probably pretty annoying. Imagine getting on a train, sitting next to someone who just smells really bad. It's probably annoying. Or here's some other things that was on the list. People who eat with their mouths open. So you're sitting down eating your lunch, and across from you is your coworker who's just smacking to no end with his mouth open. That's probably pretty annoying. Or people who cough with their mouth open, spreading potential germs all over the place. Number one on the list of 100 most annoying things was chavs. Now, I read that, and I, was, I scratched my head, and I was thinking, what are chavs? What is that? So I did a little more internet research, and apparently chavs are the youth who, who are apparently looked at uh, as the bottom of British society. These are the underclass of British society. They wear bling, or another word for flashy jewelry, and fake designer clothes. And because our human hearts are prejudiced, society looks down upon chavs. They, they, they're the underclass. They don't keep their noses clean. They don't maintain proper British manners. And they don't aim for respectability. What annoys us? What are our pet peeves? Tells us a little bit about what's important to us. I don't like being wakened in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. by my two kids because I value my sleep. And people don't like others with bad body odor or people who eat with their mouths open or chavs. Because let's be honest, we value our own comfort. We don't want to be next to someone who's smelly or someone who smacks or someone who's rude or, you know, the underclass. The Apostle Paul in the city of Athens was provoked and disturbed by something completely different. When he walked around the city of Athens, as he saw the buildings, he was struck by all the idols, all the idols of the people of Athens. And, and it bothered him. He was provoked, annoyed that King Jesus wasn't being worshipped. His heart beat with his desire that Jesus would be loved and honored and worshipped, and Jesus wasn't. In our psalm today, the Lord wants us to see that we, as the people of God, are blessed to be a blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing. The Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, pours out his love, mercy, and grace and goodness into our lives so that he might use us to bring his love goodness, grace, and mercy to the lives of other people. Church, we are blessed to be a blessing. Verse 1 in Psalm 67 opens up, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Psalm 67 opens with this prayer of desperation, this prayer, May God be gracious to us because there's a problem. And the problem is that all, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We were created to love and worship the true God, but after the fall into sin, humanity wants nothing to do with God. God created Adam and Eve, the first human beings, and gave them a pathway to life. Obey me, trust me, love me. But they, they took those instructions and basically told God, thanks, but no thanks. We'll do it our own way. So sin, as a result, came crashing into our perfect and pristine world, and everything now that's wrong with this world is traced to sin. Think of all the things that are wrong, whether it's poverty or injustice, 
or wars or racism or disease, death. Everything that's wrong is traced to our rebellion against a holy God. And that rebellion, that sin, brings curse, the curse and judgment of God. That means women now experience pain in childbearing and painful and broken relationships in the home. That means men, our work isn't easy. There's thorns and thistles in our work. It's not easy to make a living in this world. And all of creation, in fact, is cursed. So that now all of creation is afflicted by disease and death. But it gets worse than that. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So Psalm 67 is talking about God making his face to shine upon us, but the problem is that because of our sin, God's face is actually hidden from us. Sin creates a separation. And that means God is a terror to us. We stand in the presence of this God who is ever-present, always knowing, all-hearing, all-knowing God. Every thought, even before we thought it, he knows it. Every word before it's spoken, he knows it. Every action before it's done, he's seen it and knows it. Those words that you should have never spoken. He knows those. Those thoughts we should have never had had. He knows those. And this God is a terror to us. I think Tim and I get along pretty well, but if I were to step off this podium and get about six inches away from him right here, he'd probably start getting a little uncomfortable. So I won't do that too long to you, brother. (laughs) Uh, God much closer than six inches away from us. He is always in front of us, behind us, next to us, above us, below us, always and forever in our presence. And that's why the psalm opens up with this prayer of desperation. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us because if there's going to be a relationship we're going to have with this God that's not based on curse and judgment because of our sin, there has to be grace. He has to make a way to reach us. And the good news, church, is that that's that's exactly what he did. God made a way for a holy God to dwell with the sinful people. God gave his people, the Israelites, priests. So sacrifices for sin could be offered. Israel could worship God in the tabernacle and then later on the temple where God's holiness could be contained in this structure and wouldn't break out and and destroy the people. And then God gave his people a covenant where he could relate to them, not on the basis of sin and curse, but on the basis of redemption and blessing. So we read in in Numbers 6.22, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. So instead of cursing and destroying his people because of sin, 
in grace, God chooses to bless and multiply them. Look at verse 6 in Psalm 67. So keep your Bibles open to Psalm 67. Verse 6, the earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. And we see creation beginning a process of restoration. Instead of thorns, the earth is fruitful. Instead of cursing, our God shall bless us. But everything in Israel under the old covenant was always at an arm's length. God was at an arm's length with his people. You can think of it this way. Imagine if you wanted to visit the White House or have an appointment with the president. You don't just walk up to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, ring the doorbell, and expect the president to come out and invite you in. It doesn't work like that. If you want a tour, it's recommended you, you book a tour three months in advance and you do it with your congressman. You have to do that. And if you want an appointment, well, good luck with that. If, if the president wanted to give all the citizens of our country five minutes of his time, it would take him a thousand years. A thousand years. So, so you got to have connections if you want to get close to the president. You've got to be powerful. You've got to be important. Otherwise, the closest you'd ever get is an arm's length. And I'm thinking an arm's length between you and your television or your, your computer screen. That's about as close as you'll get. And in the Old Testament, that's about, in, in some sense, that's as close as God's people got to God. There were priests, but only the priests could go into the tabernacle and only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the temple. The people had sacrifices, but these sacrifices were repeated day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year as a reminder of their sins. And the people had later on a temple that was built, but to worship, you actually had to go there. And again, access was limited. Access was restricted. But all of this changes with the coming of Christ, the Son of God, the Word made flesh. No longer is God at an arm's length from us he welcomes us with open arms. John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That means we as human beings, flesh and blood human beings, we have heard with our own ears, saw with our own eyes, touched with our own hands the eternal life, Jesus Christ, who was never at an arm's length. In fact, he welcomed people with open arms. He told the, the children who were bothersome to the disciples, hey, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And he chose a life of poverty. He walked among us. He lived like we lived. He became hungry. He became thirsty. He became tired. He was made like us in every way, yet without sin so that for our sake he could fulfill the law of God on our behalf and then die as a curse in our place. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So the curse upon humanity, upon creation, the curse on women and men and creation is now reversed and now, in Christ, God is able to open the floodgates of blessing to us. That means because we are joined, by Christ, joined to Christ by faith, his resurrection guarantees that one day we will never grow old. We will never grow sick. We will never die. When Christ died for sins by faith, 
we died with him. When Christ rose, that means one day we will rise again. But it's not enough for you to just hear this message or even come to church every Sunday. It's not good enough for you to agree that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Is he your Lord and Savior? It's not good enough to agree that he died for sins and rose. Did he die for your sins? Did he rise for your justification and your cleansing and your forgiveness? In short, have you repented of your sins? Repentance is just a word meaning turning away, turning away from sin, everything that displeases God, turning away from a lifetime of telling God thanks but no thanks, I'll do it my own way. There are two kinds of people who need grace. One is those who think they're pretty good, think they don't need any grace, but you do. You just don't realize it. The other group of people are those who think, I'm such a bad person. There's no way God could accept me. I'm so bad. I'm beyond grace. Well, if you're in that second category, God wants you to know that, that even though your grace may be great, his Your sin may be great. His grace is greater. And where sin abounded, his grace abounded even more. And even today, everyone who calls upon him shall be saved. Anyone who comes to Christ, he promises he will never cast out. And if you belong to Christ by faith, this is the reality of Psalm 67 is is your reality. God is gracious to you. That he has blessed you. He's, he's making his face shine upon you. That means the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and fellowship of the Holy Spirit is with you. If Christ is your Savior, then God, the God of the universe, is your Father, and the Holy Spirit is your counselor. The Holy Spirit's your helper. That means you're never alone. You never have to walk through life wondering if you're pleasing to God because you have the Spirit inside you leading you on the right way to go. And church, let's, let's not forget how this is just grace upon grace, that, that our sin in Christ has been taken away, that death has been defeated, and Satan has been crushed forever. And even though you might be poor in this life, in Christ you are infinitely rich because of the riches of Jesus Christ, the riches of God for you. Verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. But what if we stop there just for a moment? Stop there for a moment. How would we complete that thought? If for a moment you could write verse 2, what would you write? May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that we might live the American dream, that we might work until we're 65, retire to Florida and spend the rest of our days playing golf, that we might live a life of comfort and ease where we can just buy more, store up more, and accumulate more? It's not how the verse, how, that's not how the thought's completed. Verse 2, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Church, God blesses us so that we might be a blessing to others. We are blessed to be a blessing If you've been saved by God, God wants to use you in the salvation of other people. God gives to us, not primarily for our sake and our benefit and our comfort and our enjoyment, but for his sake and his glory. 
That means God is gracious to us. He blesses us. He makes his face shine upon us that his way may be known, his saving power among all nations. We're not to be hoarders of God's gifts and God's blessings, but channels of it. And when God saves a people, when he does great things for us, our our natural response is worship. Look at verse 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And the, and it's, it, the refrain is repeated again in verse 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Amen. Hallelujah. There's no, when we underline or we bold something, it's important. And the Hebrew authors, they didn't have, they didn't have a word processor. They didn't have Google Docs. But they did have a special way to position words. All, as in all peoples, appears after the word peoples to emphasize it. So if you wanted to correctly translate that word all in verse 3 and verse 5, it would be bold. It would be all caps. It's let all the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. Because God's desire is that all peoples, all nations, all families, all tribes will come before his throne of grace and worship him. And as I look at the, as we look at the diversity of this church, it's, it's truly a blessing that even here in our local church, we get a small taste of God's heart for the nations. And it reminds us of our, of our mission statement, which is worshiping God and welcoming all with gospel truth and neighbor love. It might be helpful for us to take a moment to just define what worship is. Some people think worship is just coming to church. You come to the church worship service. Some people think it's songs that you sing. You sing worship music, worship songs. It is those things, but it's also so much more. To worship, means to, to worship Christ means to dedicate our whole life, all of our being, to the glory of God. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. And if you're a Christian... You're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, for, the, for your personal redemption. You've seen something of how good and how amazing this God is. And as a result, you want to dedicate your life to this great God. Amen. John Piper wrote this book called Don't Waste Your Life. And he talks about the tragedy of a, of a wasted life and shares a true story that appeared in a magazine. In this magazine article talked about uh, a couple which took early retirement from the Northeast. He was 59, she was 51. They took retirement from the Northeast and moved to Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise around on a 30-foot trawler playing softball and, and collecting seashells. John Piper writes, At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream. But it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life, before you give an account to your creator, be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. That is a tragedy. Don't waste your life. We thank God that 
we have a number of retirees at this church who are, who are so faithfully investing their lives for Christ and for others. They're, they're using their time wisely and doing anything but wasting their lives. Immediately, Bill and Becky Davis, brother and sister, you guys come to mind. You guys are laying down your life for Christ. Even though Bill and Becky have retired from the 40-hour work week, they haven't slowed down. They're always on the move, serving Christ and, and their family in countless different ways. They're pouring out their lives so that God's way may be known on earth, his saving power among all nations. Greg Taylor is another person who comes to mind. He's routinely at the church office because he has run out of invitations to give out to people. He's constantly at 69th Street giving out tracts, books, uh, invitations, telling people about Risen Hope Church and telling people about Jesus, inviting them. So we are grateful to you and many others. We're blessed to be a blessing, and so many more, both retired and working, are living this out, and we are grateful to you. Blessed to be a blessing, though, doesn't begin with Psalm 67. God and his people have always been on mission to take his salvation to the ends of the earth. In Psalm 67, you can hear a faint but clear echo of God's covenant with Abraham. So that means before there was number six, the Lord be gracious to us, the Lord be gracious to you, bless you, make his face shine upon you. Before there was Psalm 67, there was Genesis 12. Genesis 12, one through three. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Did you get that? God tells Abraham, hey, I'm going to bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing to all people. God gives Abraham a great name, makes him into a great nation, so that in him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. And this blessed to be a blessing would take place throughout the scripture in three separate phases in history. Those three separate phases, Old Testament, New Testament, and the return of Christ. We'll briefly walk through them. Phase one, the Old Testament was a come and see approach when it came to blessed to be a blessing. God gave his children Israel land, children, and an earthly kingdom so that the pagan nations around Israel would come and see what a great God Israel worshipped. If you remember, the tabernacle and later the temple was overlaid with gold. There was this glorious earthly kingdom that God was providing to his people. Notice the movement in the psalm. It begins with, may God bless us, it begins with this prayer, but in verse 7, it ends with the fulfillment of that prayer. Verse 7, God shall bless us. Let the ends of the earth fear him. And that's what we see with Israel. God raised up a glorious earthly kingdom for Israel, and Queen Sheba comes from the ends of the earth to Solomon, one of the kings of Israel. She comes and hears Solomon's wisdom, but not only that, she sees the temple she sees the palace. She sees the offering. She sees all his food, the servants. She sees such a glorious kingdom that the pagan queen is stunned and doesn't know what to do. And her only response after visiting Israel and Solomon and seeing all this stuff was to worship Yahweh, 
to praise Yahweh. She became a worshiper of Yahweh as a result. But even in the Old Testament, we see hints that this, this idea of come and see would be broadened beyond that. Isaiah 45, 22. God is speaking, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. If you know your Bibles, you know that phase one, come and see, would fail because the nation would fall into terrible sin and be exiled. Can't really have a come and see if the temple and the palace are burned to the ground. I guess you could come and see, come and see the rubble, come and see the destruction of what happened because we disobeyed God, but that wouldn't really work. Can't really have come and see when there's no more offerings or food or servants or people. Can't come and see when you're exiled into a foreign country. But the good news is that the servant of the Lord in Isaiah would gather back those exiles, but not only that, extend God's mission to the Gentiles. Isaiah 49.6, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This servant of the Lord in Isaiah, this light to the nations, of course, is Jesus Christ. That means phase one, come and see, would eventually give way to phase two, go and tell with the coming of Jesus Christ. Go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of the earth, this earth, otherwise my servants would take up weapons and fight. Our weapon, the weapons of our warfare are spiritual in nature. That's why we don't build gold-covered churches. We don't build an earthly kingdom. The church is a spiritual kingdom, so we don't point people to a particular building or to a particular nation, be it Israel or the United States or any other nation. We point people to Jesus, the Redeemer. We point people to knowing Him, finding ultimate joy in living for Him and worshiping Him, to know God and to enjoy Him forever. That means, Risen Hope, it's okay that in less than two years, we've had three separate locations because the church isn't the building, it's the people. And we can worship God uh, anywhere because God is everywhere. Verse four, let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you judge the peoples with equity and, judge and guide the nations upon the earth. Notice that the nations aren't singing for joy at some vague higher power. They're not singing for joy at some supreme unknown being. They're singing for joy. They're praising the true God, the true God of the Bible, the holy God who judges peoples with equity, the loving God who guides the nations as a shepherd guides his flocks. And that's why, church, we go on missions. We go and tell others so that they may know and love and enjoy this God forever as we have. John Piper writes, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship 
is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. Church, do we experience that white-hot enjoyment of God's glory? Because that white-hot enjoyment of God's glory is the fuel that propels us on mission to, to tell others, whether it's locally or globally, about Jesus. But worship isn't just the fuel of missions, but the goal. The goal is that people would come to know and enjoy him forever. As we look around the nations, we see that the idols are a dime, are a, dime a dozen. Anything and everything that, make, that, that people think will make them happy, safe, or secure. The idols of our nation are, are pretty obvious to us. We, we spent a whole sermon series in Ecclesiastes talking about them. They're things like money and power and pleasure, things that are ultimately empty. The idols of other nations might be ancestors or spiritual gurus or carved images. But in either case, whether here or globally or abroad, those idols are powerless to save. Only our God can save. Only our God has power over sin and death and destruction. Art museums are built so that beautiful and worthy works of art can be displayed. It wouldn't be right if the Mona Lisa was stuck in someone's basement so that only a couple people could enjoy them. The Mona Lisa belongs in the Louvre so that people from all over can, can enjoy that painting and see what a great work of art it is. When I was back in school, I, I took a class where we had to go visit the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston. And one of the displays, they had, they had a modern 